when he speaks about here a good name, that's what he's describing, the establishing or the maintaining of a good reputation, that when someone thinks upon us or they hear our name, that they would think well of us, loving favor, the idea is they would think upon us in a favorable way that we would be respected uh, when thought upon. And he says sometimes there may come an occasion where we have to choose between maintaining and having that good reputation and actually obtaining greater wealth, where maybe uh, we would, in a sense, exchange one for the other, maybe exchanging the opportunity to become richer or have more financial resources, but in order to do that, we have to compromise or maybe make concessions or do things or treat people in a certain way where we could really tarnish our reputation or do something where we lose the respect in the eyes of people, but uh, in so doing, we gain ourselves greater financial assets in some way. And here he's just speaking about how wise people esteem the value of having a well-respected reputation and that it is wisdom to understand that there's actually more value to having honor in the eyes of other people uh, there's more value in the big picture. There's a much better payoff in the long run, whether it's the reputation of a business or it's the reputation of our individual lives, our character, what is thought about us when people think about us or they hear our name, that if we have to choose, wise people would choose rather having the, re the retaining of good favor with people where people who know you, they love you and they respect you and that you recognize that has a much higher value in the bigger picture, the larger scope than just the opportunity to maybe get ahead financially if that means you have to sacrifice your reputation or the respect that people would have towards you. Verse 2, he says, the rich and the poor have this in common, so they may not have the same financial status, certainly, but one thing, he says, they do share in common, and that is this, that the Lord is the maker of them all. So again, just a, a reminder here that it's wise to always remember in how we're relating to people, in how we treat individuals that we interact with, that there is one shared status that always exists despite financial differentiation uh, between the rich, so whether it is the richest of the rich and multi-millionaires or whether it is the person who is just struggling to live day by day and is maybe in a third world country and in impoverished conditions and that has been their existence maybe from their birth, he says at the end of the day, the wise person remembers the one shared status despite financial differences is that every person is equal before God. Uh, that God is the creator of all, he's the maker of all, and because of that, God values and sees each human being as equally important, despite how much money they have or despite how little money they may have. Uh, that God in no way is impressed with those who may have greater wealth or greater resources or maybe they're able to amass you know, a large amount of financial resources. And though the world may esteem people as, well, that's an important person. I mean, if you think of who typically becomes famous and names, you know, I mean, I could name numerous individuals who you would recognize that are very well off, you know, financially. But if I were to name individuals who are on the far end of the spectrum, the other end in poverty or who are poor, more than likely not a single person probably on the whole earth would recognize their name. But the reality is, is God knows the name 
of both of those individuals, the richest of the rich on the planet and the poorest of the poor on the planet. God knows both of their names. Jesus said every hair upon our head is numbered, and Jesus cares equally about both individuals. And he is not any more impressed with the wealthy person, nor is he in any way less interested in or despising the individual who seems to be insignificant from the world's standards or has less in some way financially because God doesn't show favoritism and he doesn't show partiality. To God, everyone matters the same. And to God, it's important we also realize because he is the maker of both the rich as well as the poor, the creator of both, God also holds each human being equally responsible for the same things. So God does not, in a sense, make exceptions for this category or exceptions for that category. God doesn't look and say, well, I'm going to change the standard. I mean, because that person is rich and powerful and influential, I mean, they're a mover and a shaker, so I'm going to I'll lower the standard. God doesn't do that. And in the same way, God doesn't show, uh, if I could say, undue pity and a victim mentality towards someone who's poor and impoverished. And so in some way whereby, well, because they've lived in abject poverty or they struggle or they, they live in a day-to-day -day existence in poverty in a third world country, well, I mean, we're going we're gonna to give them an exception. They don't have to embrace the reality that they are a sinner and that they need to be saved by grace. So, I mean, they've suffered enough on the earth. So God doesn't look at things that way. God holds the same standards of truth and morality for all. He expects the same from all. He sees each person as equally valuable and important. He expects the same from us all. And look, the reality is this. The truth of the matter, when we think about how the Lord is the maker of them all, not only as their creator, but to recognize in God's sovereignty, God allows the rich to become rich. And God in his sovereignty allows the poor to be poor. I mean, the reality is, if you've traveled anywhere else outside of the United States of America, you know, in the majority of other places in the world, a good portion of the world's population does not live the way that we live here in our country. And if you've been to any third world countries or places like that, you get a real uh, sobering reality that some people live in very difficult, impoverished conditions, and that's all they've ever known from their birth. That, that, that's been their entire existence. Now, it's incredibly wrong for us to look upon them in that condition. I mean, I've been to you know, very uh, impoverished world areas of, of, of Honduras, Dominican Republic. I mean, I, you've been to places as well. And for us to somehow look upon them and think, oh, well, you know, something's wrong. Why did God let that person be born there and live in that country rather than be born in the United States of America? I don't know. God in his sovereignty as the maker of them all allowed some of us to be born in places like the United States of America. He's allowed others to be born in other locations. And again, it's not just financial status. There are other things that affect. The bottom line is Acts 17 tells us that God determines the boundaries and the locations of where all people end up in their existence on this ball of dirt. And that's ultimately what this is, a ball of dirt. But everything that God allows, where we're born, where we're raised, their family, our circumstances, our, our life experiences, God uses all those things to be the best possible chance for us as an individual human being who's uniquely created by God to have the best possible chance to come into a relationship with God. 
And so God in his sovereignty will allow us all to go through different things, to be born here, to be in this family, to have those life experiences. And the word of God teaches that he does all those things to create in his love and his perfect wisdom the best possible chance for someone to go know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if that means someone leads to live in the United States of America and go through certain things to be brought to the end of themselves to see their need for Christ, God in the sovereignty may allow and, and cause that to come to pass. If that means that someone lives in a place where they may not have earthly comforts and they may live in poverty and they may struggle, but it makes their heart more receptive to Jesus Christ and the reality that there's something beyond this world where there is no more suffering or hardship and difficulty, and that's what makes their heart open to the gospel and to Lord Jesus Christ and to receive Christ as Savior and have a hope for heaven, then God would exchange the temporal circumstances for the eternal destiny. And it's so important for us to recognize that, that we don't get you know, caught up in these kind of different things. It is so foolish for us to view or treat anyone different than another due to their status. Again, to devalue someone, to dismiss someone, or to be impressed with someone in some inappropriate way because of their power or wealth or influence. Wise people see the importance that every person is created by God. Everybody's equally responsible before God for everything the same way, and every person has just as much value and purpose for their human existence on this earth as any other individual. Verse 3 says, And a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Now, again, here's this term prudent. Again, we've seen it many times before. The prudent individual is someone who takes time to consider beyond the present circumstance, and they're able in the midst of what they're dealing with or maybe what they're trying to make a decision about, they're able to see beyond the moment and take into consideration the next day ahead or even the next moment ahead, that if I say this, then that may translate into that in this conversation. Or if I make this decision, that may then have this impact upon then what my experience is tomorrow or next week or next month. And so the prudent person is that individual who's able to make judgments looking ahead in light of their decisions, which is a good thing. It's an aspect of wisdom. And he says that prudent individual at times will foresee evil and hide themselves. That is, if we see an evil outcome down the road, we can see something heading in the wrong direction, and we're able in prudence to look ahead and see, hey, going down that path is going to bring a harmful, problematic situation. It's a pathway towards evil and things not being good. Prudent, wise people recognize that, and he says what they do is they're able to hide themselves, that is, they, they, they see what's happening, what's coming down the road that's not good, and we might say they get off the detour, they get off the exit ramp before they go rushing down the road and experience the pain or the problematic situation. They take the detour in order to protect themselves from harm and damage. So if at times we're able to see ahead and recognize, hey, I can project what's coming, I can see if I keep going down that path, or I can see what's coming ahead, uh, the wise person, the prudent individual, uses preservation and wisdom and to protect themselves or their interests. They, they take a detour. They do something to kind of protect their interests in some way using wisdom. Whereas foolish people, he says the opposite, the foolish person, the simple, they just pass on. The idea is they dismiss such things. They disregard warning signs 
And as a result of that, they end up being punished. So the foolish man just keeps pressing forward in a wrong path, and they end up suffering as a result. They don't take into consideration the warnings. They push past roadblocks or opportunities God gives them to turn away, to get off the path, and to choose instead to go forward. And then as a result of that, they suffer punishment. And it really becomes then a self-inflicted problem. It just becomes a self-inflicted wound because they could have kind of turned away from that. And again, if we think about all of our lives, if we're just to be honest, the Lord typically always sends us cautionary signs. I mean, he does. Uh, We see him doing this with, uh, you know, congregations of people, the nation of Israel. I mean, in the days of Noah, God gave them a warning. He gave them a whole century in advance, telling them problems were coming, their evil was going to be called to account and punishment in the days ahead. And the only individuals, eight of them in total, Noah and his sons and their wives, took precaution and hid themselves and didn't experience the judgment of God coming down the road. Everyone else just kept pressing on and they ended up suffering punishment. And it's the same way in all of our lives individually. God typically, to prevent us from making bad decisions and going down wrong paths, typically he will caution us when he sees danger ahead and he will try to give us that warning, cautionary signal. The question is, is whether or not I choose to respond accordingly. Whether I do what the first part of the verse says, I get off the track and I hide myself and I protect myself from the coming evil, or if I just pass on and I just press through and keep marching forward, and then we end up experiencing punishment because we kept moving in a direction that was not good. Verse 4, he says, by humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Now, again, here's another good reminder in the Proverbs. I like to kind of just bring this back to our attention every once in a while, that you cannot read the Proverbs and take them as doctrinal promises in every sense. These are life principles. They're wisdom principles. They are general principles which typically prove themselves to be true, spoken from a God of wisdom, saying, look, this is a good way to live. This is a a wise path. These are principles that typically play themselves out in life, but we have to be careful to claim them as straight-up promises because we can really then begin to get out of context. For example, there are people who are not living in humility, who are as arrogant as can be, and they are experiencing great riches today, correct? <laughs> there are people that are very highly honored in the eyes of men in the culture, and they have no fear of the Lord in their life. They hate God, or they're living in, in complete rebellion to God, and they reject God's authority, and yet they are highly honored and esteemed as celebrities, and they have great you know, fan followings and so forth. So again, we have to be careful to think that by humility and fear of the Lord, that's a guarantee to get riches and a guarantee to get honor and a guarantee to get some value of life. And that if we don't have humility and we want to be proud and that we want to live, you know, without the fear of the Lord, that somehow God is simply saying here, look, to live in humility, which means to have a proper view of ourselves, that you don't have a higher view of yourself than you should, but you also don't have kind of that pseudo-spiritual 
uh, false humility where you're always self-deprecating and putting yourself down and I'm a nothing and I'm just, I'm not even a toenail in the body of Christ. I'm the toe jam in the body of Christ. And, you know, and sometimes we kind of do that kind of thing too where we're always just, you know, sometimes even putting ourselves down to get somebody to put us up or we're, we're kind of overly to an extreme, you know, making ourselves more inferior and worse than what we really are rather than just having an appropriate view of who we are in a healthy way, a proper estimation of self in the sight of the Lord. So humility is that, as well as living in the fear of the Lord, which means we respect God's authority. We have a healthy reverence that if I disregard God's way, if I rebel against God's authority in my life, it's not going to go good for me because I, I'm fearful that God will discipline me or that God may you know, intervene if I reject his authority and rulership over my life, that my life belongs to him. And what he's saying is when we live in humility and we live in the fear of the Lord, generally speaking, that is going to bring about blessing in our lives. That when someone lives in humility before the Lord and they reverence and respect God in a proper way, Typically, that is going to have attached to it a life that is going to have a lot less pain and problems and destruction, and it's going to be a life that God is going to be way more able to bless and to enrich and to honor and to do things that are good for us, and so certainly to a degree, much more blessing will come if we live according to the pattern of verse 4, whether financially or in other ways of being enriched as well. Verse 5, he then cautions thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. The idea is the crooked individual who lives in a distorted way outside of God's design. And he who guards his soul will be far from them. So this proverb speaks of how taking any crooked path, any perverse path off of God's way is going to lead to, he describes here, pain and suffering as well as being ensnared or entrapped in things. Thorns and snares describe that. Thorns speak of painful things, right? Typically, a thorn causes pain. You don't, you know, uh, embrace a thorn bush. You don't purposely run through a thorn bush because thorns cause pain. And so he's saying, if you take a perverse path, here are two things that you and I can anticipate are going to be a part of that pathway. If we take a perverse path, there's going to be pain. We're going to bring suffering and pain and hardship into our lives. And together as well, we're also going to find that there are snares in that crooked way as well. That is, we're going to end up getting caught in traps. We're going to find ourselves in a place where we are caught and ensnared in sins and into things that we never wanted to be stuck in. And so he says, the wise person recognizing that guards his soul in a way where we might say the wise person puts up boundaries in their life that keep them from taking perverse and crooked paths. The best solution we might say for having a life filled with pain and traps and snares and being stuck in things, the best solution is just preventative wisdom to stay away from those things. He says, just put boundaries up in your life. Set a guard to protect your soul from entering into error, and you can spare a lot of pain and being trapped and stuck in a lot of things that you never wish that you got ensnared in. Verse 6, he gives us a good parenting verse here, great wisdom. Train up a child in the way he should go. 
and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, again here, God says a few things to us, and I would caution as well, biblical principle here, wisdom principle here, to what degree we can take that and stamp it with a guarantee that the first part of the verse guarantees the second half of the verse. From what I've watched and observed in, in my lifespan and, and you know, parenting children and people that I know, you know, it doesn't seem to me that God violates the free will of a human being just because their parent does a perfect job raising them. So to say, look, I train my child in the way that they should go, so when he gets old, he will not depart from it because I did my job perfectly as a parent. Well, listen, God did his job perfectly as a parent in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and by Genesis chapter 3, God's child already exercised his free will as the perfect parent in a paradise existence Nothing that Adam and Eve could complain about. Oh, well, my dad was dysfunctional. My father was too overbearing. Uh, you know, my, my, my mother didn't properly. And God had rebellious children, right? They exercise their free will. And so I think we need to be careful to think that our child can't exercise their free will just because we did our, our job right. He's giving a principle here to encourage us as parents and few things he tells us in verse 6 here, train up a child in the way he should go, that tells us that God's instruction is that a child needs not just physical care and not just affection alone, but also, key word, training. Training. And many parents typically do very well in the first two categories. Most parents tend to do very well in the first two categories. They give appropriate physical care to their children. They provide for them food and shelter and clothing and, and many on top of that. They spoil them out the gazoo with letting them do everything they want to do and do everything they can to keep them happy and provide for this club and that activity and you know four days a week they're running here. And, and so many parents do very well in that area, almost maybe to excess sometimes. Many parents do well in the area of affection. That is, they give lots of you know, affectionate care to their children out of love for them and devotion for them. And, and I think that's a wonderful thing too. That also, let me say, I think can be taken to excess at times. Where, where children with you know, helicopter parenting and over-babying their children, their children are 20, 25 years old and they're still acting like a 12-year-old. And, and sometimes, to me, that's the result of the, the over-undue a little bit over, and listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with affection. I'm, to this day, I'm still very close with all three of my daughters. And so those first two things are valuable, but God says the physical care and the affection should never be indulged in to the neglect of the third thing, which is training. God's word calls us with our children to take responsibility for the training of their lives, the responsibility of the parent or any older guardian, however that may work out in the child's life, entrusted with that child, the Bible says, is to train them. Notice, God says, I don't care what the culture says, God says that a child cannot be left to direct their own ways, that a child is not supposed to be able to choose their own course, a child is not to have the freedom to figure out life through their own experimentation. 
Oh, I need, we need to let our child experiment to figure out. No, God says, no, they're not to be left to figure out. God says they're to be trained. They're to be, they're to be guided in right ways. That is, the parent's role is to teach them, to coach them intentionally that they might go in the right way, in the correct way. That is the parent or guardian or steward of that child's responsibility, that there is a way, notice verse 6, there is a way, you see what it says, that they should go. Now, what does that refer to, the way they should go? Well, I mean, numerous things, certainly, that we could deduce from that. The book of Proverbs is all about that there are two ways. There's the way of wisdom, and there's a way of foolishness, right? So one of the right ways in which our children should be raised and trained to go in is that we would want them to go in the way of wisdom, how to live life well, rather than to go in the way of foolishness. That is that we would seek to train our children as we're raising them as parents to train them to become moral, responsible, productive human beings. And that that would be part of our training regimen, that we're trying to train them to live well, to live wisely, not to live foolishly. Our goal is to make them moral and responsible and productive. I think another way in which we're to train our children to go that's very clear from the scripture is, of course, that is that we're to train them in the way of the Lord. Again, Ephesians speaks about we're to train our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That is, we're to train our children to know the Lord personally, to come to know the way himself, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And so we're to train our children how to come to know the Lord, what that means to have an experience with him, to experience his salvation, to walk with Jesus, how to honor the Lord. We're to train our children how to serve the Lord and to know what it means to live a life of following after the Lord and dedication to him and serving him as the Lord over their life. And I think another way, and I'm just speaking from my own personal experience, looking at this verse and how it played itself out in our lives as well, I think another way in which the parent is to train their child in the way that he should go, in the sense that, in the singular sense, that he should go, not they should go, not a generalization. The idea is, I think another way we're to train them in the way that he should go is the specific way of their unique calling. Again, we know we have a unique and individual thumbprint and other aspects of our lives that make us uniquely different from every human being. And I believe that God wires all of us as human beings differently. We have a unique life calling. We have aptitudes towards certain things. We have personalities that God gives to us and certain talents, and then also the deficiency and the lack of those areas as well. And so there is a certain way, I believe, that every child is destined to go that's specific to them, not just a way of wisdom and the way of following the Lord. That's, those are the general, most crucial things. But there is a way specifically that every child, I believe, is to go. And our job as parents trying to train them is to be able to discern and recognize that by being engaged and involved parents so that we're trying to help unpack what God has built into them. Which means that what we don't do is if we recognize that John or Bob or Sally or Sue has an aptitude towards music and they really don't like sports, that we're not trying to live the glory days through them and make them become this stellar athlete when maybe they don't have an athletic aptitude and maybe they have more of a musical or an art aptitude. 
or we're not trying to force them to be this or cultivate them to be that uh, in a way whereby we're not training them to go in the way that they should go. We want to help them discover who God's made them to be and help facilitate and assist that and to train and prepare them for what they're destined for specifically. And I think to the degree that we do that, we help our children understand their callings and to develop who they are in the Lord and to recognize, be comfortable with their identity and to realize that nothing is subservient to anything else. Look, you need to be who you're called to be by the Spirit of God's calling upon your life and to embrace that, to go in the way in which you should go. And we want to help them as parents to recognize that and to kind of get behind that and train and prepare them that if we see they have this personality or that temperament or that aptitude, we train them according to that, which may mean that we do a little bit of different training with each one of our children because we realize I need to prepare him for this. She seems to be wired for that, so I need to help train and prepare her for that. And so again, the whole idea, keep in mind, of the word training speaks of dedication to a consistent, ongoing process. Training is not an overnight thing, right? If you've trained an animal or anything, you realize training is dedication to a process. Lots of teaching, continuous correcting, lots of reminding. In training, things have to be practiced again and again. You have to keep letting them be practiced. You have to keep reinforcing things over and over and over and over again and again and again through a whole process. And together with that, proper rewarding in the training process, proper discipline and punishment and correction in that. And we have to be honest in our evaluation as well. Just like a coach trains an athlete, you have to be honest in your evaluation with training your child and even adjust your approach at times and learn how to adjust as may be needed for different seasons or maybe different struggles. Just like if somebody's training a, you know, a boxer or a fighter in some way and they realize, look, you have an area of weakness here and you came to seem to keep you know, struggling, so we've got to adjust some things. We've got to fix that glitch because that's something that's causing you to be defeated more than succeeding. And so sometimes as parents, we have to pay attention. And again, in the midst of the training, look how to fix issues. And early on, if we invest in that way in our children, training them, taking that process seriously through the developmental years while our kids are still under our authority and we have a degree of access and influence and control, if we start and are dedicated to that process of training right away, I think the general principle God is telling us is if we do that, the encouragement is it's not a guarantee because God allows free will, but if we build that good, solid foundation and we get to train them in a way no one else has access to do for 18, 20, 22, 20, however many years God may allow, if we do that well and train them faithfully, intentionally, consistently, the good news is, is even if our child begins to then take a detour or they tend to wander, if we've laid down a good training process, it's much, much higher the probability that they'll more easily find the way back if they wander. And that's the goal, is that we do our absolute best to train, because to me, it's almost like somebody getting off a path in the woods. It's much easier to find a well-worn path. So you know what? With our kids, we want to create a well-worn path so that even if they deviate over here, 
it's much easier as they get older, as they go off and they become independent, that they won't depart from it. They may depart temporarily, but it's much easier to find their way right back onto that path again. And so that's the idea that through our investment as parents, God gives us, hey, train them up in the way they should go. And the, the great encouragement is that will help them even when they become old to not depart from that path or at least not depart from it very long. Verse seven, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. So this speaks about just a common reality. Often those with greater wealth have greater power, greater influence typically in any society. And because of that, they end up being in control, which is to a degree a wisdom principle as well, that wealth does empower people. It can empower people in a bad way, certainly, but it also can be something that empowers people in a healthy and a good way. Wealth does empower. And in connection to that, he also says second half of the verse, in the same way that wealth empowers, he says the borrower also is servant to the lender. So this speaks of the borrower where you owe money to a lender. And he says that typically is basically just a form of bondage. So when you find yourself, if the Israelites sold themselves into slavery because they had a debt that they couldn't pay and somebody became their master over them and they had to work off their debt. If they owed some debt, basically their freedom was inhibited. They lost a degree of freedom because basically they gave up control over their life. They could not do what they wanted or preferred to because they owed something to someone else and it restricted their freedom. And so God speaks to us this principle of wisdom, certainly in regards to any form of debt and financial debt. The Bible cautions us to be wise as it pertains to financial debt because debt is a form of bondage, God says. It is. When we owe someone resources, finances, in whatever form a debt may be, God says, look, understand the borrower serving the lender, debt really does, it kind of robs our freedom as human beings. It causes us to just be in a place where until that debt is satisfied, you cannot be fully free to do what you may prefer to do or you may want to do because you're restricted because in a sense of the enslavement of the debt. So again, it's just wise to be aware of that, to seek to avoid debt as much as possible, to realize it can be a very restrictive thing that can really hold us back from the freedom to serve God how we may want to or to do things because we're, in a sense, in bondage to a different master. Verse 8, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow and the rod of his anger will fail. So this speaks again of the sowing and reaping principle, sowing and then reaping particularly unpleasant circumstances due to, he describes here, sinful choices, practices of sin, sinful behaviors. When we do wrong things and practice sin, he says it will result in reaping sorrow. That is pain, regret, remorse, problems, right? And he says, and we even end up being at times frustrated with ourselves to the degree where we are angry over doing sinful things with ourselves. But even if we beat ourselves up with a rod of anger, that doesn't even remove the trouble, <laughs> We're just angry with ourselves, and yet we're still suffering with the, the sorrow and the regret of the wrong things that we've done. So again, we sow to the flesh, we reap the painful consequences that go along with it. Verse 9, he speaks of another form of sowing and reaping. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. So this describes sowing and reaping in a much better way. 
and again, seeking to bless others, to do something in generosity to help someone out or to bestow a gift upon someone, maybe seeing someone who's in need, looking for occasions, he says, with a generous eye. That's it, is you're someone who with a generous heart, your heart then gives you a generous outlook, and so you're looking for opportunities maybe to help people in a giving way, to share of resources, to do something generous, to bless someone. And he says, when that's done, he says, God honors that. He says, when someone has a generous eye, they themselves will end up being blessed. Now, the Bible speaks of that happening in numerous ways. The Bible speaks of being blessed that if we give, we have saw another occasion where God says, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord and God will repay him. So there is a biblical principle of using our resources to bless someone financially where God can bring back blessing into our life financially as the result of having an open hand and being giving. But even beyond that, there's just the aspect of there's something that is a real blessing, right, when you're generous to someone. When you do something to bless someone, you get blessed in the process. You know, Jesus himself, did he not? He said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And there's just something of a blessing attached to that, he says, where you can be blessed by having that generous heart and giving of something that's yours, maybe you sacrificing your bread, giving up something to someone who has a greater need. Verse 10, cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will See, so this describes how sometimes problematic people who the Bible may be, in a sense, describing here simply as we might say troublemakers sometimes need to be removed from a group or society or collective gathering of people in order to reestablish peace and harmony and unity. He describes here the scoffer, and again, the scoffer is someone who is, you know, always sort of, you know, mocking and criticizing. They question everything. They have some type of a cynical, you know, comment about everything. And he says such people like that can begin to pollute an atmosphere. Look what they, they produce. He says things like contention and strife and reproach. So notice where there's an atmosphere of contention and strife and criticism and complaining, God says that is created and caused by toxic people or by a toxic person. And if someone is always doing such and polluting the environment of a group of people, God says the wisest thing sometimes to do is not necessarily to keep trying to address them and address them. God says sometimes the absolute best thing to do is to remove them to put them out somehow, to, to do something to remove them from the gathering. Because he says here, cast out the scoffer, notice, and all the contention and strife, it will leave and cease. And all of a sudden, man, harmony's back again. All of a sudden, there's peace back again. Why? Because the toxic person was removed. The toxic individual sometimes must be set aside if they refuse to repent and get the toxic nature out of their system and their actions, because they, in an unhealthy way, pollute others, God says. Verse 11, he who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. So interesting picture. The king will be his friend. Even kings, and what were kings? They were rulers, they were leaders. 
The Bible says even kings and leaders need and desire friends. And notice he says leaders prefer friendship when they find individuals who have a twofold characteristic, purity of heart and grace on their lips. He says the type of people that leaders like friendship with is those who have a pure heart, that is, they're sincere, they have no ulterior agenda, right? They're not just being friendly with the leader because they're looking to try and have some, no, they're just, they're in a pure heart, they just want to be a friend. They just, they just care about that person as a person. Yes, they're a leader, but look, I also know you're a human being, and I just want to befriend you. I just want to give you companionship and be a good and faithful friend. And he says also leaders prefer to have friendship with those who have gracious words on their lips. That is, those who speak in gracious ways. They speak in ways to uplift and to inspire. Again, not always complaining about this or grumbling about that, or you know, but they're just encouraging, inspiring individuals. And he says those are the kind of people that find themselves becoming good friends uh, to kings, to those in leadership. Now, again, when we look at verse 11, I can't help but to look at that and not see a beautiful picture and reminder there of our own king, Jesus, that those of us who have a purity of heart and grace on our lips, our king, Jesus, will want to be our friend. Why? Because those are the same things that matter to him, right? Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. And when our hearts are pure and we have gracious words on our lips, that causes our king, Jesus, to want to, in a sense, have deeper intimacy and friendship with us. It enhances our closeness with the Lord. Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the faithless. So here God's heart, notice, is to protect and to work to preserve what is knowledge, that is what's truth, that which is right, which, which is factual and correct. God seeks to protect that because knowledge is empowering and knowledge is liberating. So God seeks to protect knowledge and preserve knowledge that's true but he seeks to expose and disrupt and overthrow lies that don't align with what's right because he knows that lies are very damaging. Verse 13, we come back to the lazy man once again in our section here. The lazy man says, there is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the street. So here again, we see another clear sign of laziness. If we ever find it surfacing in our life, laziness, one clear symptom of it is excuse making. God reveals again that the lazy man, again, he's not lazy in thought because he's got a great imagination, right? So he's got great ideas and a great imagination. So lazy people have great imaginations. They have great ideas and great thoughts. The problem is, is though they are willing to work really hard at making excuses and coming up with ideas, they're not willing to just actually get out and do the hard work and grind out what needs to be done as far as work that they should. So a clear sign of laziness is excuse-making regarding why the lazy man, the lazy woman, won't just do what they should do, the thing that they should be addressing or taking care of. Notice they express irrational fears, and I use that word sincerely, irrational fears, and that's a real problem even in our culture today, not just fear, but irrational fears that aren't rational, they aren't based in any form of reality, they're just irrational fears of what might happen. Oh, if I go outside, a lion may attack me. Or if I go out in the street, somebody may take me down and kill me. Now look, let me just say, anything is possible. It could be there's a lion outside. I don't know, there are lions out there. It could be that if you walk across the street, somebody may mug you or stab you. 
but that's not a justified, rational basis to be terrified to go out and do something. And God here just speaks of how it's the excuse-making that the lazy person offers. And look, the reality is this, folks. Wisdom understands the only way any of us will accomplish anything productive in this life is if we are willing to actually embrace a degree of risk and face fears. Everything has a degree of danger to it. Everything has a degree of risk to it. What we don't want to do is in an unhealthy and unbalanced way begin to start making excuses of fears or possible risks or harm in a way whereby that's our justification for not doing what we should, embracing a little bit of risk, you know, facing a little bit of fear instead of you're kind of sitting back and hiding away in a way that's not healthy. Verse 14, the mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. And this speaks of, again, of the immoral woman in the sense of the adulteress, someone preying upon a man with you know, sexual intention to bring him down, is like a deep pit, and he who is abhorred by the Lord falls there. So the idea here is you know, picturing the immoral woman in such a way whereby, again, through her words, notice she seduces, she draws in the man by what she says, and he says the man who wanders into that finds himself stuck in not just a pit, but a deep pit. That is in a place that is dark and difficult, and now it is very difficult to get out of what you've got stuck in. And he says those who refuse the Lord and live in rebellious ways and become important to God Oftentimes, they set themselves up, in a sense, because they take away the protective barrier, and God will ultimately let them have their own way and perhaps get drawn in to this immoral woman's words, seducing them in, and they end up finding their life in a great pit. Verse 15, he comes back to another great parenting verse. He says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of correction will drive it far from him. So notice, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, deep within them, and it takes the rod of correction. The rod speaks of authority and painful discipline is what drives it out of that child's life. Looks so important, again, when we talk about the concept and the ministry of parenting to realize that despite how adorably cute children are, and look, I got two grandchildren right now, cutest little things under the sun. I'm loving the grandparent thing because I can enjoy all of their cuteness and all of their affection with none of the responsibility attached to it. I get to sleep at night. I don't have to be the bad guy. I, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I'm discovering it's just a fantastic, privileged thing. It's like the reward of not killing your own children. It's like God says, here, now you get to play with kids and just play with them and no responsibility and hug them and let them sleep. And so, but again, important to realize that despite how adorably cute all of our children are, they're so precious, they are born, the Bible says, sinful and inclined towards foolish ways of living outside of God's will and in selfish rebellion to what God's authority and will and plan is for their life. And again, the parent's role, as well as God-given responsibility, is to identify, the Bible says, that foolish, sinful bent inside of the heart of their own child's thoughts and behaviors and to confront it. And to have the backbone and the courage as a parent 
to despite how adorable they are and how precious and important to us that they are, that when we identify that foolish, sinful bent in their thinking patterns or their behavior, that with backbone and parental authority, you confront that and you use your God-given authority in corrective discipline to drive that unhealthy and destructive behavior out of their life for their own welfare and for their own good, to help them to change, to help them to overcome sinful tendencies. And again, this requires, requires, did I say that yet? Requires commitment to correction. Just like it requires commitment to training to be a good parent, it requires commitment to correction, which is healthy and appropriate corrective disciplinary actions, whatever the rod of discipline looks like and means. And that's something for you to determine as a parent between you and the Lord. I know what it looked like for us, but you have to determine that in a healthy, appropriate, controlled manner, there must be corrective, painful discipline in a way whereby that child learns from the earliest stages of rebellion until the last day they walk out your door and live independently as an adult, that bad decisions equal painful consequences. And I am here as your God-given representative, as your dad, as your mom, to teach you that, to help you in every way I can to prepare you as you head out into the world, and then you're fully responsible for all of your own decisions and absorbing your own painful consequences. And again, as parents, God calls us to do this, to be involved in that painful experience as a deterrent, because the goal was to drive wrong character traits and bad behavior out of the child's life to free them from those things, to get that out of their life, because look, much better that I do it as their dad, because I love them. I got a good agenda here. I care about you. I care about your welfare. If I don't do it for you, then the only other options is there are going to be other people that are going to be in corrective discipline and it's going to be a lot more painful and punitive and, and they have no personal vested interest in you. So again, this is why Proverbs 13 told us back a few chapters ago to spare the rod that is for whatever reason parents may want to use as a justification, oh, to spare the rod reveals, he said back there, that we don't care about our child's best welfare. It shows that we hate our child. God used that language, which means that we don't really care about them. The idea is we care too much about our own convenience as a parent, or we care about our image, or, or we're too involved wanting to do what we want to do in our selfish adult life that we don't want to put in the energy and the time it takes to have to stop what we're doing and be inconvenienced and go correct our child that instead, you know, we, we, we love ourselves too much, and sometimes that's the reason we don't care enough to correct our children. But he says, we indicate that we love them when we want what's best by disciplining them promptly, Proverbs 13 says. That is that we are always ready in the moment to not just train, but to discipline and not lose corrective discipline opportunities. That we realize that they are just as valuable. So again, the parent must expect wrong things to arise in their child's heart. That's a part of parenting. It's a part of our child being a child, growing, developing. We have to expect them to do wrong things, and we have to humbly identify and admit what's going wrong and not justify it and not make excuses. 
And I tell you, I've seen many parents get off the beaten trail with their child, and sometimes the problem is, is they just cannot bring themselves in humility to identify the wrong things going on in their child's life. And they're too embarrassed, or they just don't want to admit that their child is genuinely struggling with those things. And I tell you, that is a trap of the enemy. You gotta be willing to have the humility as a parent to humbly admit what's going wrong, and then you have to have the courage to exercise your authority to overcome that error and drive back the enemy's attempts to misguide your child and be willing to inflict painful consequences, however that unfolds, in a measured, controlled way to free them from those things to spare them from worse problems. He says in verse 16 here to us, he who oppresses the poor to increase his riches and he who spares, or excuse me, gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. So here he describes those who take advantage of the poor to exploit their situation, to enrich themselves with a selfish agenda. And boy, it is a sad thing to recognize that does happen. It happens in government where the, the rich exploit the poor. It happens in the business realm where those who are wealthy or powerful in higher places in a position to increase their own profits will exploit and take advantage of those who are under them, paying them an unfair wage or you know, doing things to basically just, hey, well, get rid of this because that brings my bonus up or my profit margin up, and it happens in business, and God says that's not a good thing. To try and enrich yourself off of the back of someone else who's already struggling and to exploit them. Or he mentions giving to the rich. The idea is with some ulterior motive. Well, let's give more to the rich person here to kind of curry favor with them. And God says either one that is done is mistreating and manipulating people. And it may work for a season, but God says you're going to find out poverty and loss. You're going to end up losing out if you do that in the end because God cares about treating people. Now, Last few verses, verse 17 through 21, we'll wrap up with these. It's almost as if, notice, the writer comes back to reminding us about the value of these Proverbs. In case, perhaps in some way, you're thinking, man, I can't wait till we get to Ecclesiastes. It's been a long time in Proverbs. Again, it's almost as if God knows our human nature. So he says, let me just give you a little reminder again of the value of these Proverbs. God says, look, incline your ear. There is, lean in, pay attention. Hear the words of the wise. That's what all these Proverbs are. And apply your heart to my knowledge, the writer says. For it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. In other words, if we keep the wisdom of the Proverbs within our lives, it's going to bring a much more pleasant life for all of us. Let them be fixed upon your lips. That is to talk about them. Know the Proverbs so that you can talk them through and share them with others so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have instructed you today, even you, he says. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth and that you may notice knowing the truth, do what? You may answer with words of truth to those who send you. So look, for those of you wonderful troopers who come out here Wednesday after Wednesday as we go through proverb after proverb after proverb, the wonderful thing is not only is it enriching your life with greater wisdom, but it's also equipping you to be a conduit to be able to speak more truth and to share more wisdom in your family, in your jobs, in your community, with people around you to help a whole lot of people in the world who are living in really foolish ways. 
because they bought into a bunch of dumb worldly error. And God's equipping us with truth and wisdom to be able to impart that to others.